FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. I'm Bernard Gersh from the Mayo Clinic, and with me is a, a colleague, Dr. Barry Borlag, who has a major interest in uh, heart failure. And our topic for today really is, I, I, I think, controversial and very topical, namely quote, diastolic heart failure, although I believe, Barry, that the real professionals in the area call it HEFPEF, or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Is that correct? Welcome, anyway. That's correct. Thanks, you, Thank you, Bernard. Um, yeah, so it's traditionally been called diastolic heart failure because the pathophysiology and the disease mostly relies on the abnormalities in diastolic function. Uh, but more recent work has shown that it's more complex, and there are other issues as well, which is why HEFPEF, or preserved VF heart failure, is the more preferred term. Let's just be begin, I, I guess that's the definition, but, but how do we make the diagnosis? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, sometimes it's quite obvious. I mean, with a patient with a normal ejection fraction who is obviously volume overloaded and congestion with jugular distension and gallops and a peripheral edema clearly has HEFPEF. But a lot of patients don't have overt evidence of volume overload, and it becomes very tricky. Uh, there have been a number of guidelines uh, proposed, uh, many of which rely on echo-Doppler features. Uh, but we've seen that uh, these are not perfect, and in certain circumstances, you need more invasive evaluations to really prove it. So let me just uh, stop you. Before we get to the invasive aspect, what, what about the role of BNP? Well, NT-pro-BNP that we do here in terms of the diagnosis. So patient, normal ejection fraction, short of breath. What are the pitfalls? It's certainly important. I think it's useful when it's very high. Um, some have proposed that if it's not high, it excludes the diagnosis, and we've seen that that's not the case. We, in a series we published about a year and a half ago, saw that of a number of patients, about 60 patients with normal BNP but otherwise indeterminate dyspnea, when we cath them, at stress, they had high filling pressures. So, uh, and when they stopped exercising, the filling pressures came back down. So their BNP is not high at rest because they don't have high filling pressures at rest. So in some circumstances, that can lead you down the wrong path. Can age um, be a pitfall in terms of BNP yes. in itself? And, and obesity can't, can't it? Exactly correct. Uh, so or By falsely lowering it. Right, so, so BNP increases with normal aging, and it's higher in women than men. Uh, and we know that. Uh, Sorry, just pick up right. There. We'll just carry on. Okay. So, um, so, uh, uh, um, so, so, age and obesity can let you down in terms of the BNP by falsely lowering it. Is that is that correct? Right. So, uh, for age, BNP increases with normal aging and is higher in women than men. So that can. Um, uh, falsely tell you or give you a signal of HEFPEF uh, that is not real. That's just normal age and uh, gender-related differences. As you, obesity, which we know is a big risk factor for HEFPEF, drives BNP down. So it's lower for any uh, wall stress or filling pressure. Is that, is, is that because of um, LVH, an increased wall thickness, and therefore under Laplace law, less stress? That's one proposed uh, model of it. It may be uh, related to differences in metabolism and adipocytes. It may be due to differences in wall stress. It's not clear right now. Barry, before we get into the pathophysiology, which I know has been uh, just a major interest of yours, just clarify one aspect of, quote, diastolic heart failure for me. Most people with systolic dysfunction 
are going to have abnormalities of, quote, diastolic function. Yes. Uh, and where does that fit into the spectrum of HEFPEF or doesn't it? Because they do have systolic dysfunction. Well, there are, that's correct. So patients with systolic heart failure all have diastolic dysfunction. And um, many people would say that to qualify for the diagnosis of HEFPEF, you should have diastolic dysfunction. And that's almost always true. Um, I would say that if you have high filling pressures and inadequate cardiac output to the body at rest or stress, that's heart failure. We'll start from that and then look at diastolic function. But for all intents and purposes, they almost all have some element of diastolic dysfunction. So we're going to now just focus on the patient with a clear diagnosis of heart failure, preserved ejection fraction. And by that, that's 50% or greater, 45, 40, Correct. 60. I mean, it varies from study to study. It's generally about half as the rule of thumb, but uh, some a study from Olmsted County a couple years ago showed that the uh, prevalence of HEF-PEF relative to reduced EF or systolic heart failure is increasing by about 1% per year. So maybe by 2020 or 2030, we're going to be talking more about 60-40%. As the population ages. Correct. Because right now you say it's 50-50, and the diagnosis is made on of HEFPEF is an ejection fraction greater than 50%. That's what some use 45, some use 40, but we most are using 50% right now. So um, I've never seen flash pulmonary edema without hypertension, and that really leads us into the pathophysiology of this condition. Is it a ventricular condition? Ventricular, is it an interaction with the peripheral vasculature, is it both? It's uh, all of the above, probably. Um, it's, it's much more complex. Um, we like to have just one sort of process account for all patients, but the, unfortunately that's not the circumstance. Clearly the patient, there's a sort of patient that comes in with hypertensive crisis and flash pulmonary edema, and that's sort of one brand. They have a very stiff ventricle and stiff aortas, uh, and minor perturbations in pressure and volume cause acute flash. What about the average, the, the elderly woman, history of hypertension, clearly short of breath with signs of failure? What's the pathophysiology? If you, if you could try and unify it. So they have diastolic dysfunction, so their ventricles, they often have concentric remodeling or hypertrophy, and their ventricles are stiffer, so they require a higher filling pressure. That backs up on the lungs and the pulmonary vasculature and may cause secondary pulmonary hypertension. They may get hypervolemia from renal effects and neuroendocrine activation. But there's also abnormalities which are not apparent at rest that with stress become apparent. The ejection fraction is normal, but when you stress the system, when you exercise, for example, the EF doesn't go up as much as it should. There is also a failure to uh, vasodilate to the periphery. There is evidence of endothelial dysfunction, so there's inadequate uh, delivery of oxygen to the microvasculature and the muscles where it's needed. But this is key from a therapeutic standpoint as well, and that is how much... Um, if you could fix the ventricle in terms of enabling it to relax, how much of a problem would remain because the vasculature is stiff? Is it the impedance that's increased or the resistance that's increased? What is the role of the peripheral vascular, yeah, the, the vascular bed, not necessarily just peripheral, but the vascular bed in terms of its interaction with the ventricle? Well, for, for uh Muscles to work during stress, they need to get more blood flow. And we and other groups have clearly shown that that regulation of delivery to those areas of blood flow is reduced from, from vascular dysfunction. We're not sure why that exists. Um, a number of studies now, we know that filling pressures are high, but a number of studies that have looked at 
LV end diastolic volume, which is really the preload of the ventricle, not the pressure, but the preload is, is the volume, increases just as much in HEFPEF as it does in non-HEFPEF patients. So uh, it would be hard from that to reconcile that, that fixing that is going to make them able to exercise more. So the key, and, and for our listeners, is this is a disease uh, um, of the ventricle, but primarily or a critical part of it is the interaction between the pump and the conduits that it pumps into. Exactly right. the vascular bed. Exactly right. And we've seen that many, all of these, or many of these different discrete abnormalities coexist in the same patient. Diastolic, vascular, endothelial, systolic reserve impairments. These patients typically have three, four, or five of these abnormalities that sort of coexist in the same patient to cause the phenotype. So that really allows us to get in to segue into the management. And, and what I'd like you to do if, if you, would be to just discuss the limitations of our current therapeutic strategies and then tell us what is on the horizon in terms of new directions. Uh, because suffice it to say, I think the management of HEFPEF from a symptomatic standpoint is suboptimal. I mean, we really don't do very well, do we? There's no question. Um, you know, we've seen steady improvements in outcomes as we've introduced ACE inhibitors and beta blockers and devices and reduced EF heart failure, but we haven't really gotten any better. And, and I can just start out by saying no trial has shown a, a proven efficacious treatment for HEFPEF. Has there been a trial of beta blockers in HEFPEF? There was a trial called the Senior Study um, a number of years ago, which was nabivalol in older-aged heart yes. failure patients. And um, there were a small number of patients with truly normal EF heart failure. And in um, uh, post hoc analysis, they showed that they derived just as much benefit uh, as the low EF patients, but there really wasn't a large sample. And what we need is a, a trial that is specifically targeted prospectively to just have pep. Because, I mean, the one, one attraction of a beta blocker is more time for diastolic filling by slowing the rate. Yeah. Do you think, um, and I, I think the one development or complication that these patients simply do not tolerate is atrial fibrillation? That's true. So um, that makes sense. Now, slowering the heart rate in mitral stenosis, for example, really brings filling pressures down and improves filling of the ventricle. But uh, in a HEFPEF patient at normal heart rates of 70 or so, uh, all it does is prolong diastasis. So you're really not enhancing filling of the ventricle with the beta blocker. So I would say that. Um, now, calcium channel blockers, verapamil. Same, same issues. Uh, there was early evidence, uh, especially in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, that this may improve ventricular filling, but not well substantiated in aldosterone antagonist currently under trial, the TopCat trial, which should be, I think, released in the next year or so. We're extremely enthusiastic and hopeful because aldosterone has lots of uh, uh, negative effects that are implicated in the pathophysiology. So, what about? Uh, a more futuristic approach. Where What are the new directions? Well, we're real excited right now about PDE5, phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors, sildenafil, and we're just finishing up enrollment in the RELAX trial of sildenafil versus placebo in HEFPEF. Um, 
part of this pleiotropic nature of the disease, you need a more pleiotropic drug that's going to affect multiple limbs. And there's evidence from animals and humans that, uh, that PDE5 inhibitors may reduce, uh, improve ventricular compliance. Uh, they can, of course, reduce uh, pulmonary vascular resistance. They can improve endothelial function. They may even enhance renal responsiveness to natriuretic peptides. So there's many different limbs that might be positively affected. So I think that in the future, drugs that are more pleiotropic like that may be higher yield. The glycation products, there's been one trial. Yeah, there was a small study um, of the advanced glycation end product breaker, um, ALT-711. That's 711. the collagen fibrils that that's right. get deconstructed. So with, right. so with aging, we get glycation of these, pro, of these uh, um, proteins that uh, hold our cells together. It makes them stiffer in the ventricle and the vasculature. So the idea is if you can break this with a uh, glycation end product breaker, that might help. What about gene therapy involving the sarcoplasmic reticulum and calcium uptake? I mean, that's interesting, both from the standpoint of systolic and diastolic dysfunction. Absolutely. And that is uh, currently something that we're hoping to explore in the near future. So Barry, uh, if I can sum things up, I mean, we know a lot about the pathophysiology of HFPF not much about uh, the management, but if you come back and do this in a year's time, do you think it'll be a more hopeful picture? I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us, Barry. Thank you. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Visit theheart.org to find out more. <laughs>